to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, or NHL. And today's program is actually a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have on the call today over 327 participants. You come from all over the United States, from urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have some international participants from Canada, Germany, Norway, Russia, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And it's, it's for all of you, wherever you are in the world or in the United States, just to know that there are many of you out there. And, so, and some of you are actually on the call today. Now, today's program is supported by a grant from Genentech and the Dianapoli Fund. I really want to thank them for their support of this incredibly important program. Now, we have the best speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He is Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Wall Cornell Medical College, Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Executive Vice Chair, Wild Department of Medicine. And Dr. Leonard will be addressing an overview of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, or NHL, including signs and symptoms, NHL staging and subtypes, including indolent and aggressive, and novel treatment approaches. It is really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Messner, and I want to thank you and the team at Cancer Care for putting together this program. Uh, your the programs that uh, Cancer Care does, I think, are really outstanding in bringing important and timely information uh, to patients, and this one uh, is no different today. So thank you all for joining us. So non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is uh, the most common of what are termed blood cancers, really uh, uh, tumors that occur in the blood or blood-forming organs. Um, so other blood cancers include multiple myeloma and leukemia, but non-Hodgkin lymphoma is the most common grouping of uh, these types of, of tumors. So non-Hodgkin lymphomas, uh, the the situation with non-Hodgkin lymphoma is that there are many different types. There are close to 100 different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So that is very important for patients to understand when they are diagnosed and over the course of their treatment, which of the types that they are dealing with because uh, really the prognosis and treatment is defined largely by what type uh, one is, one is uh, uh, man being managed with. Non-Hodgkin lymphomas typically present themselves in the lymph nodes. The lymph nodes are the, the glands uh, that we feel for when we see a patient uh, in the neck, under the arms, in the groin, but you have lymph nodes kind of like tiny grapes clustered throughout different areas of the body. There is lymph tissue in the spleen, which is a fancy lymph node in the abdomen. There are lymph cells in the bone marrow. The bone marrow is the cavity inside the bone that is the factory for the blood. And there are lymph cells that are really in every organ of the body standing by to fight infection. So um, when a, a lymphoma occurs, it's really that the switches that regulate the growth of these cells get broken and the cells accumulate. So again, lymphomas typically present within large lymph nodes or in large glands in one place or another or in multiple places, but they can really uh, occur in any organ of the body. Uh, sometimes they can occur in the lung, in the liver, in the brain, different areas. And when we see those, they're really a lymphoma that happens to be sitting in the lung, for example, as opposed to a lung cancer. So it's important that patients uh, under, understand uh, which type that they are dealing with. Um, the stage of lymphoma, meaning where did it spread, 
is not as crucial an issue for most situations for most patients as it is in disorders like breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. In in something like breast cancer, lung cancer, there's a big difference between is it's is it a small area in just one place or is it a larger area in multiple places. Most lymphomas occur in multiple places. And so the it is very common uh, for people to have lymphoma uh, tumors or uh, lymph nodes in many places in the body, sometimes in the lymph nodes, sometimes outside of the lymph node. And uh, it is relatively uncommon to just have it in one place or in one location, uh, what we would term stage one. So most people have their lymphoma in many different places or multiple places, and that in general does not change the prognosis in a major way. It might slightly adjust it, but doesn't really um, uh, dramatically affect it for the vast majority of patients in the vast majority of cases. So most non-Hodgkin lymphomas are what we call B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. A minority of them, somewhere around 10%, are what we term T-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, but the majority are B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. So I refer to lymph nodes as kind of like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. They have different jobs in fighting infections. And the B-cells might be the Army cells, where there are lots of these cells, all doing different jobs. And so just like in the Army, where there are um, many different uh, members of the Army doing different jobs, there are many different B-cells doing different jobs, and there are therefore many different B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Uh, we tend to divide them into bigger groups. One of the big categories is called indolent or low-grade or slow-growing lymphoma. Another bigger group is called aggressive lymphoma. Um, and they account for the two big broad categories of non-Hodgkin lymphomas. So we'll take them really in generality because there are many different types and many different specific features. The aggressive lymphomas, which is roughly a third of patients, have what's termed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That's, again, the most common type of lymphoma and the most common type of aggressive lymphoma. And those are patients that are typically treated with chemotherapy, a regimen called RCHOP, which is an outpatient treatment regimen, is the most common regimen that's used for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, typically given for six treatments or four months of treatment. It's an every three-week treatment. There are variations of RCHOP. Some of them are given in the hospital. A regimen called REPOC is one of them. There are a number of other uh, regimens that are also used for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. The majority of patients with aggressive lymphoma go through their treatment and have a good chance of being cured, meaning the lymphoma goes away and doesn't come back. However, in a meaningful group uh, of patients, meaning uh, it's not the majority of patients, but uh, enough, of, enough patients that it occurs uh, uh, and is something that we see uh, at times, the lymphoma can come back after the initial treatment. And in those cases, the lymphoma is typically treated with more chemotherapy, sometimes with something called a stem cell transplant, ultimately, sometimes with something called CAR T-cells, which is a, uh, an immune therapy that we'll come back to in a minute. And then there are a variety of other different options for, for many situations. But for most patients with aggressive lymphoma, the goal of treatment is to get rid of the disease and hope it doesn't come back. Uh, and if it does come back, then there are a number of different options that are used, again, depending on the situation. The other big category of lymphomas is called indolent lymphomas or low-grade or slower-growing lymphomas. The terms for these types of lymphomas, the most common is called follicular lymphoma. Another type is called marginal zone lymphoma. There's also something called small lymphocytic lymphoma, which is very carefully associated with something called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And then finally, there's a, another type, which sometimes can be indolent, sometimes can be more aggressive, but is approached 
often in a somewhat similar fashion, called mantle cell lymphoma, which tends to grow a little more quickly than the other indolent lymphomas, but is uh, often treated in some of the same ways depending on the situation um, as the indolent lymphomas or occasionally treated more like the aggressive lymphomas. So the indolent lymphomas, uh, I think, are very, as I uh, approach them, as kind of like hitchhiker lymphomas, meaning that these are lymphomas that are typically respond to the treatment but tend to be like a hitchhiker in that they're along for the ride. Many people, in fact, most people with indolent lymphomas do not die from the indolent lymphoma. They die with the indolent lymphoma, meaning that it is something that is managed kind of like a hitchhiker, perhaps like something like diabetes or high blood pressure that can be serious, can be life-threatening in some cases, but for many people is something that is managed and controlled with medication or treatment over many years. And so um, that's a different sort of category uh, of lymphomas, the indolent lymphomas, because we tend to take a longer-term view with an indolent lymphoma because of the fact that they tend to come back, and so they're something that we tend to deal with over many years, um, so the bad part is that we often have to treat them again at times, but the good part is we have lots of different treatments, and usually for a long period of time, those treatments uh, can work uh, pretty well. So these patients often receive no treatment as part of their initial treatment. Um, they often uh, can be what we call watch and, watch and waited, meaning or, or undergo watch and wait, where they are monitored without treatment if they're not having any symptoms. Uh, and um, if they need treatment, there are a variety of different treatment options. A drug called rituximab is commonly used. Uh, that's an antibody treatment, an immune protein. There's another version of rituximab called obinutuzumab. Um, that's often used. There's a, the, the RCHOP chemotherapy that I mentioned for the aggressive lymphomas is sometimes used also for the indolent lymphomas. There's also a drug called bendamustine, which is another outpatient chemotherapy drug that is fairly commonly used for the indolent lymphomas. So again, there are a number of different treatments and you're gonna hear more um, from Dr. Evans in particular about what happens if these lymphomas come back. And many of the newer treatments are reserved and used not so much as the initial treatment, but uh, in the relapse setting, meaning if the disease comes back, many of the newer treatments uh, start as something that's used in people where the diseases come back. So it takes a little while longer for most of the newer treatments to be used as part of the initial treatment. But that said, we have a lot of different treatment options for lymphomas, whether they're indolent and aggressive. The good news is that the treatments can work very well at controlling and improving the disease. And we have uh, um, room for improvement, however, from the standpoint of trying to make the treatments even better and also trying to make the side effects uh, even better as well. So I'm going to finish my um, portion with just a word or two about the COVID uh, situation that everyone is dealing with. And we in New York, uh, where I'm located, have uh, uh, that uh, probably more than most places, certainly in the U.S., but one of the things that comes up, and I think each of the speakers that follow will talk about COVID as it relates to their area, the main point I wanted to address is the point that comes up, are lymphoma patients at greater risk for COVID-associated disease, meaning COVID, the coronavirus is an infection, and uh, it is uh, something that is relatively contagious, meaning easy to pick up. Um, but different patients have different experiences with it. In some cases, it can be more severe. In some cases, it can be more mild. Um, and so the question comes up, well, which patients are at greater risk for more severe disease? And it seems like um, patients that are older, patients that have other medical problems, patients that are men, patients that are overweight, um, all, those tend to be patients that are a bit more likely to have more severe disease if they happen to have uh, a COVID infection. Now, this is something that's not absolute. There are certainly older patients with other medical problems who don't have much of a problem at all, and there are certainly younger patients without any other medical problems who can have very severe disease. So these are not um, uh, hard and fast rules about who's at greater or less risk. The question that comes up is, 
are lymphoma patients at greater risk? And the, the real answer um, is we don't know for sure. We are gathering those data at our hospital. We have uh, COVID patients uh, that have other medical problems. We have some COVID patients that have cancer. I will tell you that in our experience so far, it's really hard to tell if patients with cancer or with lymphoma have uh, a greater risk of getting sick from COVID or having more severe disease. We don't know the answer to that, to be truthful. Um, but one would expect that someone like a lymphoma patient who has uh, an, a somewhat compromised immune system or an affected immune system because of having lymphoma or because of having lymphoma treatment might be at more risk for COVID. So I would say as of now, while we don't know for sure, my advice to lymphoma patients is to be particularly cautious and to follow the social distancing and other precautions that are commonly recommended for people in general, perhaps be even more rigorous and careful about that because, again, it is possible that, like with other infections, COVID infection might be more severe in people with an imperfect immune system like patients with lymphoma. So with that, I will stop and I'll hand it over to uh, Dr. Messner and our other speakers and look forward to your questions later. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lona. That was really superb and just amazing uh, comprehensiveness in terms of covering so much so, many, so much about NHL. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Evans. Dr. Evans is Professor of Medicine. Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical Center, Medical School, Director Lymphoma Program, Division of Blood Disorders, Associate Director for Clinical Services, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, Medical Director, Oncology Service Line, RWJ, Barnabas Health. And Dr. Evans will be addressing treatment of relapsed and refractory NHL, the role of clinical trials, and how research adds to your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, very esteemed colleague, Dr. Evans. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and also thank you to Cancer Care and for putting this together and everyone else on the line during this time for this educational initiative. So uh, I will just really dive right in and uh, talk the majority about treatment of relapsed and refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I'll really dovetail off Dr. Leonard's excellent um, discussion about how he framed it in uh, two general categories, how we think of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, whether in the indolent or low-grade lymphoma versus aggressive, or sometimes there are some that are very aggressive. And those are obviously very 30,000, 40,000 foot. As, as we know, another important point in terms of the diagnosis, there being more than 80 different subtypes, it, we are moving towards a world where it's not just large groups, but it's drilling down to not only that exact which one of the 80 to 90 lymphoma subtypes, but sometimes our treatment is based literally at the genetic level, at the DNA, the RNA, the protein. So it really is a fantastic world we're living in in terms of highly targeted or some will call precision medicine. So I'll talk about these two groups, though, in, in a more uh, big-picture format. So when we think of aggressive lymphomas, and one that Dr. Leonard uh, elucidated, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common in the United States, when that comes back, uh, you can use the word relapse or refractory, uh, just like any situation, uh, even though there are general frameworks and recommended treatment paradigms, obviously it's going to be somewhat individualized. What I would say is, for a relapsed aggressive lymphoma like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, if a patient is uh, somewhat younger, and that's a relative word, I would say younger meaning less than 70 and even sometimes uh, a little bit uh, older into your mid-70s, uh, we will think about uh, somewhat more aggressive therapy. We will, uh, so to speak, try to fight fire with fire. And that can uh, historically has included something called an autologous stem cell transplant, which is really one cycle of high-dose chemotherapy. And when we think about that, uh, once a patient has relapsed and if we think that makes sense for them, we don't rush right to that. You have to receive some form of new therapy to first shrink the lymphoma down, and then you finish the job, so to speak, with that stem cell transplant. 
it's individualized. There are certainly experts, of course, in stem cell transplantation, and that's a therapy we've been doing, frankly, for, for nearly 50 years now. Thankfully, there are certainly new therapies and targets that have come come around. I'm sure many on the call have heard of what's called CAR T-cell therapy, CAR meaning chimeric antigen receptor, which really uh, has a revolutionary therapy. And I wouldn't say it's supplanted stem cell transplant, but it, it there there are certainly situations where we think about it after stem cell transplant and even in some situations instead of, if it makes sense in that situation. Uh, not to minimize any side effects, um, CAR T-cell therapy uh, has some side effects, and for many cases it still warrants uh, time in the hospital. But, but it is uh, a, a really revolutionary breakthrough, as I had alluded to, and something that we're really, uh, it's not only FDA-approved two agents, there's more that are being looked at, and quite frankly, not just in lymphoma, in other cancers as well. So it's something we continue to, to look towards, and I'll mention clinical trials. Let me switch over to indolent lymphoma for a minute and talk about that in some general broad differences. Usually, uh, also, it is very individualized, and the goals of therapy might be different where we're trying to use stronger therapy and get back in remission in many cases. With indolent lymphoma, it's more of a disease or, or lymphoma that is waxing and waning, where our goal is, yes, to achieve remission and hopefully maintain it for as long as possible. So it might not be strong, aggressive therapy, um, but it's one that we are trying to maintain symptoms, and, and so, as you could imagine, quality of life is very high in terms of what we think about in our treatment. So it might not be multiple agents or a stem cell transplant, but sometimes even just one medication by itself. Um, the other point to mention with indolent lymphoma, we often will not rush to treat, and that's the individualized component as well, is really only if there are symptoms that are causing um, the patient any problems, or if it's very large, that will be a time we think about treatment. And then we'll really kind of look at our menu of different treatment options, whether it's uh, antibody by itself. Um, sometimes we'll combine an oral medication that's recently FDA approved. Dr. Leonard was a, a pioneer in helping get that FDA approved in the United States. Lenalidomide in combination with rituximab is an option. And there are others that have been FDA approved. And and obviously, how do we get medications FDA approved are through clinical trials. And clinical trials are so important when we think about all lymphomas, indolent, aggressive, et cetera, not only to identify medications that are safe, but obviously we want them to be effective. But an important point about clinical trials, especially in the world of personalized therapy and down to the DNA, RNA level, as I talked about, more often than not, a medication will not be approved for all lymphomas. It is, and it's one way we've really tried to enhance the efficacy, is narrowing it down where it might be a certain lymphoma, let's say for follicular lymphoma, that example I, I had given before of lenalidomide and rituximab. Or, for example, the CAR T-cell therapy is currently, as of today, FDA approved in the United States for relapse refractory diffuse large B cell, but we are studying it in, in other lymphomas, um, CAR T cell to stay on that example. There was recent data uh, published in mantle cell lymphoma that looks quite interesting and exciting, and I would not be surprised if uh, later this year or soon thereafter that that is FDA approved. But, but it's important to do those clinical trials because, yes, it, initially a medication or a new therapy will get approved. For a certain lymphoma subtype, we can't assume that it's either effective or safe in the other subtypes. So really, it's so important to do these clinical trials, not just to inform the efficacy or effectiveness, but also the safety. Um, and so that's even one drug by itself. Uh, Thankfully, now with the explosion of science over the last couple decades, we're really just exploring a multitude of different targets, and that's whether targeting the surface of a cell, like a, a rituximab antibody or like CAR-T, or like the medication I mentioned, lenalidomide, that's targeting more the inner machinery of a lymphoma cell, targeting that DNA. Other examples that are FDA-approved in, in the United States include uh, 
class of agents called the BTK inhibitors that are not only FDA approved for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, but also soon thereafter garnered approval for mantle cell lymphoma. So that's great. And what are we doing now? Well, we're learning, okay, how do they work in those that are already approved, but can those also work in other lymphomas? Number one and number two, how can they work? How best do they work? And there are a number of clinical trials open in the United States looking at these agents in diffuse large B cell, whether in combination with other therapies, as well as indolent lymphomas, et cetera. And there's a whole host. There's another class of agents called the BCL2 inhibitors that are currently approved. And we're really at the cusp of several other, I hope, breakthroughs of potential approvals. There's a class of agents called the EZH2 inhibitors. There's another class of agents that targets uh, the surface of the cell called bispecific antibodies. And again, all of these are interesting and exciting, but at the same time, we need to kind of calibrate uh, our minds to say, all right, let's uh, kind of show me the data in terms of clinical trials, that safety and the efficacy. Just one other point that uh, I'll finish on in talking about clinical trials and research, I've really highlighted mainly therapeutics, which obviously are at the tip of the spear when we think about um, treatment of patients and breakthroughs, et cetera. But there certainly are a host of other really important research topics. In addition to the therapeutics, it kind of starts, that's at the bedside, which we could argue is the most important, but that research starts back in the laboratory. And that uh, translational research where we first study it in the laboratory and then bring it to the bedside is such an important component and sometimes can be challenging, but really thankful thankfully through new science and really great collaborations across not just the country but the world. Uh, all three of us on the call have collaborators across the world, and it's really been a very, very fruitful process. Also, in terms of research, we think of things, I mentioned it before, quality of life. That's an important endpoint. Yes, we want a patient in remission, but let's do it with as minimal amount of toxicity and side effects as possible. And then one that Dr. Haberman is intimately involved in is uh, epidemiology, of course, and that's a common question. What causes lymphoma and how can we understand that better? Uh, yes, we want excellent treatments, but at the same time, it would be great to inform what are the causes uh, in terms of lymphoma as well. And then I'll also just finish um, my last minute or so on COVID-19 and how does that impact, it, impact the, what I've talked about over the past few minutes. And again, very individualized. In terms of aggressive lymphomas, the timeline, as you can imagine, is a bit tighter, and the treatment is, yes, it's a little stronger, but you often do not have the luxury to let up too much on the gas pedal. There is some modulation that can be done, um, but it's one that we, as I'm sure my colleagues, have really maintained the treatment, albeit with caution, social distancing, et cetera, most of the treatments, including CAR-T and even stem cell transplant. I think where there's some more flexibility is with indolent lymphoma. There might be some uh, situations where we're giving therapy and we have some more wiggle room to either delay therapy or even skip a dose. But at the end of the day, obviously, there's not an overarching consensus guideline. It should really be a conversation with the patient's family with their oncologist. And with that, uh, I will finish and say thank you, and I really look forward to any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. That was really uh, really outstanding again and just really very, very comprehensive and really presenting a lot of the details of the research and, and so people understand um, what is going into the research and how important it is. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. And Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman will be addressing managing treatment side effects, quality of life concerns, your comfort level with adherence or taking your treatment on schedule, and key benefits of communicating with your healthcare team. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's really an honor to be with you and Dr. Leonard and Dr. Evans, who I have such respect for, and thank you all for joining us. I'd like to first address quality of life. There's not a lot in the literature about this in lymphoma, but I'd like to share some of our observations. We've been interested in quality of life through the Molecular Epidemiology Research Project at Mayo Clinic and our Lymphoma Spore Grant, and in a paper that we published in December of 2018, 
We published data on 701 patients who filled out forms prospectively for us and returned them and self-reported on their quality of life using standard metrics. We reported that the quality of life at diagnosis was really important. This was a prospective study of physical activity, social family metrics, emotional assessment, and functional well-being. And interestingly, quality of life at the time of initial presentation was associated with improved overall survival and event-free survival in aggressive lymphomas and an outperformed performance score. So the better your quality of life at the beginning of the journey, the better for you. And I think this probably has implications for treatment as you go on. The second thing that we observed was that functional well-being, physical well-being, and overall quality of life was lower after initiating chemotherapy compared to prior to therapy, demonstrating that therapy-related side effects significantly impact patients, so side effects are very important. So what can you do about your quality of life? Again, in the molecular epidemiology research cohort, we followed 3,060 patients who initially filled out forms. We had a third follow-up on 1,371 with baseline health and self-administered risk factor questionnaires. And at three years, there was a significant improvement in overall survival, lymphoma-specific survival, and event-free survival in all histology studied in patients who met or exceeded national recommended standards for age and sex with regard to physical activity recommendations pre-diagnosis and in patients who had a change that is an increase in their physical activity. So what to do in this time period is difficult, but walking, jogging, bicycle riding, workout exercises at home with videos, isometrics, and so forth are all very important. So what about addressing the management of side effects uh, in this present time period? As I thought about this, there are two fundamental issues to the story as we speak today. Number one, the side effects of chemotherapy and the presentation of an active COVID-19 infection have remarkable similarities. What a complicated and challenging time in world history with COVID-19 and maybe one of the most unique time periods in world history definitely since the, in this last century. In the United States, we are informed by public television, CNN, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, a barrage of emails, Dr. Fauci at the NIH, the CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, the World Health Organization, and so many others, and we're all connected to the Internet. So this portion will weave a discussion of managing side effects and quality of life in the present context of COVID-19. The second point is that the management of COVID-19 is social distancing, i.e. not coming to the physician's office or other healthcare facilities, and management by tele and video conferencing as much as possible as a present standard of practice. So what are the similar presentations of COVID-19 and complications of chemotherapy? These are remarkably linked. To further complicate this, some of these may be associated with relapse of disease. So let's first discuss the presentations of COVID-19. What are they? Number one, fever. Almost everyone has a fever of greater than of 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit or greater with a COVID-19 infection and regional and state procedures and policies dictate which patients get tested. Next, cough, coughing up blood, shortness of breath, chest pain, confusion, passing out, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, altered sense of taste and smell. But what does this also look like? These can also be complications of chemotherapy. Fortunately for both of these, the majority can be managed at home. The key is, Fevers 100.5 degrees or higher, you really have to contact your healthcare team because it could be a complication of chemotherapy if you're on that, or it could be infectious in nature. Dr. Gita Thanner-Jazigam at our institution has been involved in a very large international initiative on toxicities and their assessments in a paper of over 40 co-authors, and in this time period of that Dr. Evans and Dr. Leonard just uh, pointed out that the t immunotherapy and molecular targeted therapy approaches are evolving 
and the toxicities are different as time has evolved. In addition, many of our patients are on other drugs with for other diseases, hypertension medications, and so forth, and so polypharmacy also complicates this. So general comments about toxicity include the following. First, it depends upon the type of treatment. Chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, transplant, CAR T-cell, and even CAM approaches that is complementary uh, approaches are, are all different. Second, the most common side effects are lowered blood counts, fatigue, gastrointestinal symptoms, skin changes, and peripheral neuropathy. How do you manage these kind of things that occur? This is why we follow your blood counts with intermittent blood checks on certain drugs. From a bleeding issue, soft, tissue, uh, soft toothbrushes are recommended. In addition, avoiding tampons, enemas, suppositories, or rectal thermometers uh, so as not to provoke infections or bleeding. Infections, if you don't feel well, the first thing you need to do is check your temperature. It may not be evident. If your white blood cell count is down, the neutrophils are down, then good hand washing, washing fruits and vegetables, do not eat undercooked meat or raw fish, and then some for patients in some regimen, colony growth stimulating factors are indicated. Nausea and vomiting, prescription medicines have now really altered the natural history of this, and for the most part, it's not the problem it was 20, 30 years ago. For fatigue, Rest and exercise. Exercise is really important. Specific drugs, corticosteroids, irritability, and insomnia are significant issues, and they can be very difficult to manage. Monoclonal antibodies, this is why we administer Benadryl, Tylenol, steroids uh, before drugs such as rituximab. Ibrutinib was mentioned, and venetoclax. It's important to avoid grapefruit, Seville oranges, and marmalade as these can increase the drug levels. Abrutinib introduced a whole different set of toxicities with irregular heartbeat and bleeding that wasn't anticipated. Idelalisib, diarrhea can occur and may be a reason that we have to stop the drug and pneumonia symptoms can also present along with skin rashes. And venetoclax had an unexpected somewhat unexpected toxicity of tumor lysis syndrome because it works so well. So what do we do at this point in time? The second point that I want to emphasize is social distancing. The primary health strategy is not antibiotics or antiviral agents, but it's to keep human beings from direct contact. This is counterintuitive to the healthcare systems worldwide. Secondly, it's important to note that some patients don't get sick with this virus, and it's projected that a high percentage of patients will recover. Uh, this may go on with the distancing up to 2022. As has been alluded to, and I want to reemphasize, the problem is who's at risk. It is patients with comorbidities, so age over 60 to 65, immunocompromised patients, i.e. those on chemotherapy especially, and as articulated by Dr. Leonard, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, reactive airway disease, obesity, and heart disease. And this really is a problem in our lymphoma population. So what can family members do to help you? And I think that it's very important to the environment around you. The social distancing must be embraced uh, in the, the six feet rule at least. Uh, the virus may travel up to 13 feet. Stay at home and isolate. Check your temperature twice a day. And how would we behave now? We behave like we have the virus. Don't misuse antibiotics. Uh, get tested when and if available. There are different levels of surveillance that may become applicable in China. Now there are cell phone colored applications. In reality, right now, for most of us worldwide, masking and monitoring for the illness is the mantra. So what can you do? I think, number one, exercise. It's fascinating the number of couples I'm talking to on the phone or through video uh, that are connect, reconnecting that way. The Internet, art museums, the National Gallery of Art has the Degas exhibit available, uh, books. Recognize that the concern exists all over the world right now. In conclusion, the problem is that the COVID-19 
problem is not going away in the upcoming weeks. In my career since 1982, I've never had discussions and plans that I've had before about delaying treatment or maybe doing less testing than we would normally require. But in the end, and we've emphasized this in a an international tumor board that I run every other week, patients with potentially curable disease and treatable disease with lymphoma should be treated with curative intent and the best possible therapeutic interventions at this time. Maybe a little different how we've done it, but I'm full of significant hope for patients with lymphoma and how they're managed at this point in time, and it'll all work out. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Haberman. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation um, in terms of the social distancing as well and and what we know about um, uh, about both NHL and, and COVID. So thank you so much. Um, and um, and uh, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Cecilia Acosta, and Ms. Acosta is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she'll be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Acosta. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Hi, everyone. As Dr. Messner mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. As an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay abreast of changing trends in new knowledge and the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. The diagnosis of cancer can be devastating. Once life suddenly changes, the diagnosis can present physical, practical, financial, and emotional challenges. Patients often feel alone and experience a sense of loss of control. Cancer presents a crisis in the field and the life of the patients and the family. Everyone handles a cancer diagnosis differently. There is no right way to handle it. But on top of coping with cancer, now one is now having to face the stress and fears of the COVID-19 pandemic. It is normal to feel stressed, sad, or worry about COVID-19, especially if you or your loved one is sick. I would like to address some thoughts on the present health crisis and coping with cancer at the same time. The anxiety and the stress about the pandemic that you may be feeling at this time is normal. It is normal to feel anxious and worry. Recognize that this is a shared experience. We're all feeling it and you're not alone. Although we have been directed to keep social distance, it is important to stay connected. While you may be able to while you might not be able to be with your loved ones in person, you can call, text, and video chat with them. You may find it helpful to plan daily calls with your loved ones that you can look forward to. Keeping a routine is also very important. While your daily routine may have changed, try to create a new one that you can follow during this time. Remember to schedule time to relax and disconnect from the news. It is also very important to examine your support system. Look at the role that each person has in your life and how they might be able to assist you with practical concerns. Each person can play a role in your recovery. What has dealt with the crisis in your life in the past? What has worked for you? What has not worked? What are your strengths? Taking a look at the past crisis and how you utilize your coping skills at the time can be helpful in dealing with your cancer crisis and now the pandemic. Focus on what you can do rather than what you're not able to do. Find small activities that you can do in your home. Watch movies, read books, exercise. It is important that you also recognize your limits if you're fatigued or you have other side effects from your treatment. Cancer Care is the leading national organization dedicated to provide free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All of our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demands, physical changes, social adjustments, and psychological impact in care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short-term cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available 
to those diagnosed with cancer, as well for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. As they offer in person in the New York City and New Jersey and over the telephone and online nationally. At this time, all of our social workers are working remotely and support services are available through the phone. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncologist, social worker, and individual counseling can offer a space that you, are, that you can express your concerns. It, is also, it also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team, among other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it is also a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Having support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network of trusted people can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce the feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional service, services, including educational workshops, reading materials, as well as limited financial support. At this time, Cancer Care has a special grants for those who have been financially impacted by COVID-19. If you're interested in learning more about our services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncologist social workers. There you can discuss what led you to Cancer Care and explore with one of our social workers the way in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be part of this program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lacasa. That was really a great, wonderful presentation. And just really um, really for everyone to know about uh, Cancer Care Hope Line to call and also to take advantage of our financial assistance programs and one specifically for COVID. So just that we have them for many different things. So do call us for that as well. Um, so, um, and now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board so we can actually um, take questions from all of you. And, um, and Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. So I'm going to turn this over to Norma now. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web, may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Edmund E. Your line is open. Yes, um, I'd like to um, ask a question. I was a um, volunteer at the first um, vaccine study that was done by the NCI back in 2000, uh, where they took a sample of my tumor, made a vaccine, had chemo, and then they injected it back. Now, there's never been a vaccine approved for sale, as I understand, for lymphoma. Has there ever been any research activity since that early BioVest study? Oh, thank you for that question. Um, and I'm going to ask um, Dr. Leonard or Dr. Evans to address this question, if you can. Thank you. Sure. So there have been, uh, there have been a couple of different studies trying to uh, make a vaccine against uh, lymphoma. So the idea would be that the patient had a biopsy, the tumor or aspects of the tumor would be uh, analyzed and changed a bit and made one way or another, not to get into the technical details, into a vaccine that would train the immune system to help fight the lymphoma off. So those, uh, those approaches have largely been studied in patients after chemotherapy, meaning that the patient got chemotherapy or, or treatment for the lymphoma, um, then got the vaccine to help delay a recurrence or prevent a recurrence of that. So there were a number of different initial studies of that, and then the way to determine whether or not that approach works is to do what we call a randomized trial, where a fraction of a, some of the patients get a vaccine and some patients either don't or get 
what we would term kind of a placebo vaccine or a, 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 a for comparison. And the fact of the matter is that there were two studies of that approach. We participated in one of those, um, and the results were not um, not did not really demonstrate meaningful effectiveness. So the idea that a vaccine at this point can prevent recurrence of a lymphoma is not one that's been successful so far. That being said, a number of other groups are still trying to uh, look at whether or not the, a vaccine, a, a lymphoma vaccine made from or derived from a tumor um, could have a potential benefit. But at this point, um, that still is a research question because we've not seen a demonstrated benefit. And so that's why this is not part of routine practice as of today. Excellent. And Dr. Evans, do you want anything? Or? No, he, Dr. Leonard did a great job, summed it all okay. up. All right, excellent. Okay. And our next question um, from one of our telephone participants. Yes. Darlene D., your line is open. Darlene, please check your mute button. Darlene D., your line is open. Thank you for your knowledge and insight today on this subject. Um, I'm presently a, I was a follicular um, lymphoma patient and recently it I had a biopsy and it was changed to the um, B cell, diffuse B cell. I haven't started my treatments of RCHOP yet and my question is, would it be beneficial for me to be tested before for the COVID before I start my treatment? Interesting question. Thank you for your, your question. Um, Dr. Haberman, do you want to address that? There are different policies uh, regionally, internationally. At the present time, before we are treating patients with chemotherapy in our chemotherapy unit, we are testing patients. Um, the, we sometimes are trying to request they be done at home, they can't be done at home, then there is delay before going into the hospital and then to our chemotherapy unit. And these policies have been changing by the day uh, in re very recent weeks. I'd, I'd be interested in Dr. Leonard and Dr. Evans, uh, what's going on at their institutions. Okay. Yeah. I'll add on, this is Andy, I was parenthetically on a call for an hour beforehand. I'm part of our local COVID task force. We have daily calls with our health system. And the quick answer is it's evolving. We are, I mean, as of now, we're today, we um, we not quite as uh, prevalent in New Jersey as New York, but we definitely have a still a high burden of disease here. And with that said, we still have a few issues on testing, believe it or not. You know, one, I think, maybe mini breakthrough, and if everyone saw that we can now test through saliva, that may speed it up a bit, but that will need scaling up. It literally just was emergency approved a few days ago. So it comes back to testing capability. Right now, as of today, we're only testing patients undergoing very intensive therapy, like for acute leukemia or stem cell transplant. I think where we'd like to be, and hopefully we will be over the next few weeks to months, is we are testing most patients who are receiving any chemotherapy, but it's still evolving. I just wanted one sub-note, Darlene, you brought up that you had a biopsy. I think that's still a critical component. We use CAT scans and PET scans and blood work and exam, but it's so important still in many instances that a biopsy is warranted to say what exactly is the type because it can change, as you noted, and, it, and that can definitely um, modify therapy that's tailored to that specific t subtype. And Dr. Leonard, do you want to add anything as well? No, I would uh, I would echo what was previously said. Whether or not patients are uh, routinely tested before chemotherapy um, depends on a lot of different factors, some of them local, some of them um, being uh, availability of testing, et cetera. Certainly, if one has symptoms, I think we would all agree that if testing is available, uh, if you have symptoms at any point of infection, um, the doctor will have to work with you to decide, you know, what evaluation is needed and, uh, you know, whether or not things can or should be delayed until that is all sorted out and improves. Um, but if you're asymptomatic, I would say it's not uh, not well established and not uh, always 
um, mandatory to have a test first, but something to talk about with your doctor. And um, we have a question, and this will be for Dr. Leonard, um, but probably others will want to chime in as well. Um, the role of exercise has been stressed. Could someone expand on the role of exercise in relation to immune system and lymphoma? Well, I think uh, it's a complicated issue to some degree uh, because of the fact that um, there are studies that suggest that exercise, that people who do more exercise do better, um, but that is complicated as one might imagine because people who can't do exercise for whatever reason um, uh, may have physical or other medical reasons why they can't exercise and therefore you don't know is it the chicken or the egg. That being said, if it is a choice, if someone um, is fit and able, and meaning that they're they're not bed bound or um, can do some some form of exercise, um, I think we would all agree that uh, exercise is a good thing. Um, whether or not it's for, it benefits lymphoma, I think is a little less clear. Although um, it certainly has been better established in other settings and has been established in, in other cancers to improve, um, if not improve how the tumor does or, or uh, you know, the treatment, um, certainly can improve quality of life and, and other factors that make a difference. So I think the general rule of thumb would be that uh, if, if you're able to exercise and want to exercise, that's, that's not a bad thing and could be a good thing on a number of different levels. How much exercise specifically affects the immune system? If the question is around uh, my immune system, whether it's related to uh, lymphoma or other infections or COVID, I think that you know there are lots of uh, laboratory-based reasons or, or research-based uh, suggestions that exercise may have some direct effects, but um, I would say that in patients that has not been well established, i.e., uh, you're going to get less infections if you exercise. That being said, being mobile out and about, taking walks, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to the gym or, or, you know, run a marathon. Just being out and about walking um, and moving around as opposed to sitting and lying is a good thing and in many ways will uh, uh, help your lung function, your heart function, and other things that will probably have health benefits, um, even if it's uh, a little bit less direct on lymphoma-related issues. Thank you. Do I want to add anything to that? Or? And um, another question this will be for Dr. Um, for Dr. Evans. Um, is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma genetic? Very good question, and I'm going to in part defer a, a decent amount to my colleague, Dr. Haverman, whose group has done work on this. The quick answer is we don't know. Um, the light, slightly longer answer is there probably is a genetic component, but we certainly have not found a smoking gun. There are different factors, not just when we look at DNA, but there's something called a SNP that looks at just kind of a piece of a DNA that might predispose it a little bit, um, but there's highly likely, to the best of our knowledge, other factors, and there's a lot of that epidemiologic research I had alluded to. I don't know if, Tom, you had anything to add? So um, it, it's a very interesting question. We published a paper in 2004, and about the same time there were two other papers that came out of and ours was then out of the lymphoma database, that suggested that there was a 6% that, that, that there were, if, if there was a positive family history in a first-degree relative, then there was about a 6% chance of developing a hematologic malignancy and most of those were lymphomas or CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And so that moved us forward, and we've been trying to look at um, a number of things, uh, SNPs such as uh, Dr. Evans alluded to, and it, we, this is not like Down syndrome where there'd be a 25% risk, but the, we're, we're identifying things, but not enough to move to the laboratory not enough to say that your then children and so forth should be screened in a different way, um, but we are uh, really looking at this closely. We're involved in some studies collecting tissue 
from uh, family, if there's a family member uh, still alive and, a, and then a patient, uh, we're doing everything we can to get that tissue. We're in collaboration with institutions such as uh, MD Anderson and other institutions. Uh, and our hope is we can make more sense of this story. But there is some mild association, but it's a very complicated story. And probably there are multiple events here and not just a single event. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's excellent. Well, I have to say I want to thank our speakers. You have been actually phenomenal. This has been an amazing um, program today. Um, and um, I want to thank all of you. I want to also thank all of you both who have asked questions on the phone and online, which also enhances the call and gives our speakers an opportunity to answer and address your questions that you may have. Now, I recognize that there are many more questions in queue, so in wrapping this up, this is a one-hour program. I do want to, first of all, provide you with information to get your questions answered. So, of course, the first place we suggest you go to is to your treating healthcare team. They, of course, know you the best. They know the most about you, and they actually um, are a very good resource for you. And also for today's call, what you've heard today and what you've learned, please take it back to your healthcare team. If you asked a question or listened to the program itself or listened to somebody else's question, please take that information back to your treating healthcare team as to how it applies to you. Um, but I do know that all of you do like to go to credible resources to get information. And so I do, we will actually, at the end of this program, be sending you an evaluation form. And that evaluation form includes a lot of the organizations that we collaborate with, but there are some specific ones that are particularly focused on lymphoma. So the Lymphoma Research Foundation has a tremendous amount of information that you can access from them um, about your questions and things like that, as does the Lymphoma Foundation of America. Um, there are a number of other organizations, and so we're going to actually recommend a lot of those to you, as well as the National Cancer Institute, of course. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I want you to know there are lots of organizations out there to help you and your healthcare team. And your healthcare team consists of so many different people. And no matter what your question is, whether it be a financial concern, you can bring it up with your healthcare team. If it's a practical concern, bring it up to your healthcare team. This is the time that whatever is troubling you, bring it to your healthcare team. You don't have to wait till the next appointment. You now can actually call on the telephone or email them, whatever is set up as a system there. Also, I do recommend, of course, that you all find out availability of your healthcare team, evenings and weekends, who you call. Um, that's very important as well. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.